Chapter Eight of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Eight: The Invasion of Mysore. For some time there was a pause in the hostilities. Tippoo remained with his army near Pondicherry carrying on negotiations with the French governor, and arranging for the dispatch of an envoy to France, with a request that the Republic would furnish him with six thousand French troops. While he was thus wasting his time, General Meadows was slowly moving with the army towards an encampment formed at Valote, some eighteen miles west of Madras. On the 14th of December a messenger arrived with the news that Lord Cornwallis had arrived from Calcutta, two days before, with considerable reinforcements and that he was about to assume the supreme command of the army. The news caused unbounded satisfaction. By the extreme dilatoriness of his movements, and especially by the manner in which he allowed Tippoo to pass him near Kavarapatam, when he might easily have attacked him, while his troops were still struggling through the pass, General Meadows had disgusted his troops. He had frittered away, without striking a single blow, the finest army that the British had up to that time, ever put into the field in India and had enabled Tippoo, unmolested, to spread destruction over a large extent of country. The only countervailing success that had been gained by the British was a brilliant victory won by Colonel Hartley, who was in command of a Bombay force consisting of a European regiment and two battalions of sepoys. With these he engaged Hussain Ali, who had been left by Tippoo in Malabar, with a force of nine thousand men, when the Sultan first retreated before General Meadows' advance. This force was defeated with a loss of a thousand men killed and wounded, nine hundred, including Hussein himself, taken prisoners on the field, and fifteen hundred more in the pursuit, the total British loss being only fifty-two men. A few days after this victory General Abercrombie arrived from Madras with reinforcements, and the whole of Tippoo's fortified palaces in Malabar were captured, one after another, and the entire province conquered. As soon as Lord Cornwallis reached the camp at Valout, with a large train of draft animals that had been brought up by sea from Calcutta, the Rajah and his troops received orders to join him. It was on the 29th of January, 1791, that the Commander-in-Chief arrived at Valut, and the Rajah arrived there on the 4th of February. As he was the bearer of a letter from the resident at Arcot, he was at once enabled to have an interview with Lord Cornwallis. On finding that he could speak English, the General received him with much courtesy. I am glad, indeed, to have a troop like yours with us, Rajah, he said. There are few of my officers who know anything of this part of the country, and your local knowledge will be invaluable. Moreover, as I do not speak the language myself, it will be a great advantage to have someone with me through whom I can communicate freely with the people of the country. There is no doubt that such communications are much more effectual when they come through one of their own princes than through English officers. I shall therefore order that on the march a space be allotted for the encampment of your troop by the side of that occupied by my own escort, and hope that when not employed on scouting or other duties, you will ride with my staff. Your mother, Rajah, was an English lady, I am told? She was, sir. My sister, who married an Englishman, is at present in Madras with my family, and her son is with me. I beg to recommend him to your lordship. He speaks my language perfectly, and having been brought up in his father's country, naturally speaks English as well as Hindustani, and will understand far better than I can do any orders that you may give. He has come out with his mother in the hopes of finding his father, 
who has, if alive, been a prisoner for several years in the hands of Tippoo. He's a fine young fellow. The other day he made a most dangerous reconnaissance into Mysore, in order to ascertain Tippoo's movements. He had with him a young officer of mine, two or three years older than himself, and when I tell you that the two young fellows held a ruined hut for hours against the attack of some seventy of Tippoo's troops, and beat them off with a loss of upwards of twenty killed, I need hardly say that he has no lack of courage. You are right indeed, Rajah. Let the lad ride beside you with my staff. Some day he will perhaps shorten a long day's march by giving me details of this adventure of his. On the fifth day of February the army started on its march, and on the eleventh reached Valor. Tippoo had for two months been wasting his time at Pondicherry, but upon hearing news that, instead of, as he expected, the English general having marched south from Valout to meet him, he had turned westward, and that Mysore itself was threatened with invasion, he hastily broke up his camp and marched at full speed for the Ghats, and, reaching the tableland, hurried to oppose the British army, as it endeavoured to ascend the pass going from Valor through Ambur, by which he made sure he would come. Lord Cornwallis encouraged him in the idea by sending a battalion of considerable distance up the pass, while he started north and entered the easy pass of Mugli, leading west from Chitur to Mulwagli. He pushed rapidly up the pass, and gaining the summit before Tippoo could reach the spot and oppose him, it took four days longer for the battering train, baggage, and provisions to reach the top of the pass, after a delay of a day or two to rest the animals, which included sixty-seven elephants which had been brought from Bengal, the army set out for Bangalore, the second largest town in Mysore. The Rajah's troops had been busily employed from the time the army moved from Valout. The men on their tireless little horses carried his messages to the various divisions and brigades, brought up news of the progress of the train, or rode on ahead with the officers of the quartermaster's department, whose duty it was to precede the army, to decide on the camping-ground, and to mark off the spots to be occupied by the various corps. In this way they saved the regular cavalry from much fatiguing duty. Surajah and Dick were generally with the party that went on with the quartermasters, and, as soon as the camping-ground was fixed upon, aided them in the purchase of forage and food from the natives, as it was most desirable that the forty days' provisions the army carried with it should remain intact until the army had passed up the Ghats. Beyond that it was expected that it would be harassed by the Mysore horse, who would render it impossible for the cavalry to go out to collect forage or provisions from the country through which it marched. So well did the Rajah's troop perform its duties, that Lord Cornwallis ordered it to be taken on the strength of the army, and to receive the pay and rations of native cavalry in the service. On the day after leaving Valor, the general sent an orderly to request the Rajah and his nephew to ride with him. "'I have not had an opportunity of hearing of your scouting expedition,' he said to Dick, "'and shall be glad if you will give me full details of it.' Dick related the adventure from the time they had started. "'You were wonderfully lucky in getting back safely,' the general said, when he had finished at least. "'Luck is not the proper word, for your safety was due to your quick-wittedness and courage, and your escape with your companion from the guard-house, the manner in which you got through the fort in the pass, and your defence of that hut, until the Rajah's troop arrived to your rescue, were all of them admirably managed.' He then proceeded to inquire further into the object for which Dick had come out to India. "'I heartily wish you success in your search,' he said, "'and sincerely hope we may obtain news of your father. I do not know what your intentions may be afterwards, but should you wish to enter the army, I will at once nominate you to a commission in one of our native cavalry regiments.' "'I am deeply obliged to your excellency,' Dick replied. "'But, as if we learn nothing of my father during the war, I am quite resolved to spend, if necessary, some years in Mysore in the search for him. I must therefore be free to devote my time to that.' "'At any rate,' the general said, 
If at any time you should feel free to accept my offer, it will be open to you. In the meantime, I will appoint you one of the interpreters to the army during the expedition, and will attach you to my own staff. It will give you a recognized position, and it is only right that, as you are doing good service, you should receive pay. You shall be put in orders this evening. You can, of course, continue to camp and live with the Rajah. The change made very little difference in Dick's duties, and he continued at his former work in the quartermaster's department until the army was ready for its advance to Bangalore. To the general's surprise, as the army moved forward, nothing was seen of Tippoo's cavalry, by which they had expected to be continually harassed. The Sultan had, as soon as he perceived that Bangalore was threatened, hurried the whole army to that city where he had sent his harem when he started from Seringapatam to attack Travancore, and instead of sending off a few hundred horsemen to escort them to the capital, while with his army he opposed the advance of the British, he took his whole force with him in order to remove his harem with all the pomp and ceremony with which their passage through the country was generally accompanied. Consequently, it was not until after taking, without resistance, the forts of Kolar and Uskota, and arriving within ten miles of Bangalore, that the army actually encountered Tippoo's cavalry. This was on the 4th of March. They made an attempt to reach the baggage trains, but were sharply repulsed, and on the following day the army took up its position before Bangalore. As they approached the town, three horsemen dashed out from a small grove, and rode furiously towards a little group, consisting of Lord Cornwallis, General Meadows, and the staff, who were reconnoitering at some little distance from the head of the column. It was evident that their intention was to cut down the general. The Rajah, who was riding as usual with the staff, dashed forward with four or five other officers, and encountered the horsemen before they could reach the general. The Rajah cut down one of them, another was killed by one of the staff, and the third knocked off his horse and captured. It was learned that the enterprise was not a planned one, but was the result of a quarrel between the men themselves. One had charged the others with cowardice, and in return they had challenged him to follow them where they dared go. All had prepared themselves for the enterprise by half-intoxicating themselves with bang, and thus made but a poor fight, when they found their object thwarted by the officers who threw themselves between them and their intended victim. Bangalore was a fine town, situated on a plain so elevated that the climate was temperate, the soil fertile, and vegetation abundant. The town was of considerable extent, that portion lying within the fortifications, being a mile and a quarter long by half a mile broad. It was surrounded by a strong rampart, a thick hedge, and a deep, dry ditch. The wall, however, did not extend across the side facing the fort, whose guns were supposed to render it ample protection. The fort was oval in shape and about nine hundred yards across at its greatest diameter. It was defended by a broad rampart, strengthened by thirty semicircular bastions, and five outworks. The two gates, one at each end, were also protected by outworks. In the fort stood the splendid palace built by Tippoo. Here also were immense foundries of cannon, factories from muskets, the arsenal, and large magazines of grain and ammunition. The position taken up by the army lay to the northeast of the Petah, or town, and the next morning a reconnoitering party, escorted by Colonel Floyd with the whole of the cavalry and a brigade of infantry, went out to examine the defences of the town and the fort. Seeing a large body of laden elephants and camels, escorted by a strong body of horsemen, Colonel Floyd rode with the cavalry to attack them. The movement was a rash one as the guns on the fort opened fire, and although at first he defeated the Mysore horse, a heavy fire was poured upon him when entangled in broken ground. He himself was shot by a musket-ball which, striking him in the face, passed through both jaws. It was at first believed he was dead, but he was carried back to camp and ultimately recovered. 
This rash attack cost the lives of seventy-one men, and of four times as many horses. As Tippoo's army was lying at a distance of only six miles away, the general determined that it would be best in the first place to capture the town without delay, and to assault the fort on that side, as he could then do so without any fear of an attack by Tippoo, who would be able to harass him constantly were to he approach the fort from any other direction. Orders were therefore issued for the 36th Regiment, supported by the 26th Bengal Sepoys, and a party of artillery under Colonel Moorhouse, to prepare to storm the north gate of the town at daybreak the next morning. As soon as dawn broke, the troops rushed toward against the gate. The outside work was speedily stormed, but as they issued from it toward the gate itself, they were received with a very heavy fire from the walls, together with a storm of hand-grenades. Colonel Moorhouse brought forward a six-pounder, receiving two wounds as the price was run up to the gate. The first time it was fired it had no effect beyond making a small hole, and the next shot had no greater success. Colonel Moorhouse ordered a twelve-pounder to be brought up, but as he was aiding to put it into position another ball struck him and he fell dead. While the artillerymen were pouring shot after shot into the gate, the roar of musketry was unceasing, the thirty-sixth keeping up an incessant fire upon the enemy upon the wall, in order to cover as much as possible the operations of the gunners. At last the gate gave way, the troops poured in, cheering loudly, and the enemy at once fled. Many, however, took up their positions in the houses and kept up a galling fire, until their places of refuge were stormed by detachments of troops scattered through the town. By nine o'clock all was over, and the town completely in the possession of the British. Tippoo, furious at its having been so speedily captured, moved down early in the afternoon with a strong force of infantry, and, marching along by the side of the fort, endeavoured to force his way into the town through the open space at that end. He was aided by the guns of the fort, while his artillery kept up a heavy cannonade upon the British encampment. When the Sultan was seen marching toward the town with the evident intention of endeavouring to retake it, the 76th Regiment was sent in to reinforce the garrison, and the three battalions opposed so steady a resistance to Tippoo's infantry that the latter were forced to fall back, after sustaining a loss of some five hundred men. The troops began next morning to erect batteries. The position was a singular one. A small army was undertaking the siege of a strong fortress, while an army vastly outnumbering it was watching them, and was able at any moment to throw large reinforcements into the fort through the Mysore Gate, which was at the opposite end of the fort to that attacked, and the efforts of the British being directed against the Delhi Gate, which faced the town. The advantage which had been gained by the employment of the great train carrying the provisions for the troops was now manifest, for unless the army had been so provided, it would have been forced to retreat, as in the face of Tippoo's army with its great host of cavalry, it would have been impossible to gather provisions. The first batteries erected by the engineers proved to be too far distant from the wall of the fort to effect any material damage, and others were commenced at a much shorter range. The work was performed with great difficulty, for the guns of the defenders were well served, and a storm of missiles were poured night and day into the town and against the batteries. The garrison, which consisted of eight thousand men, were frequently relieved by fresh troops from the Sultan's army, and were thus able to maintain their fire with great vigour. On the 17th Tippoo cannonaded the British camp from a distance, but without doing great damage. In the meantime the fire of our siege guns was steadily doing its work, in spite of the heavy fire kept up on them. The stone facing of the bastion next to the gateway was soon knocked away, but the earth banks behind, which were very thick and constructed of a tough red clay, crumbled but slowly. Still the breach was day by day becoming more practicable, and Tippoo, alarmed at the progress which had been made, moved his army down toward the east side of the fort, and seemed to meditate an attack upon our batteries. 
He placed some heavy guns behind a bank surrounding a large tank, and opened some embrasures through which their fire would have taken our trenches, which were now pushed up close to the fort, in the flank. Lord Cornwallis at once directed a strong force to advance, as with the intention of attacking the new work, and Tippoo ordered his troops to retire from it. It was evident, however, that he had determined to give battle in order to save the fort, and the English general therefore determined to storm the place that very night, the 21st of March. The preparations were made secretly, lest the news should be taken to Tippoo by one of the natives in the town, and it was not until late in the evening that orders were issued to the troops which were to take part in the assault. The column was to be composed of the grenadier and light companies of all the European regiments, and these were to be followed and supported by several battalions of sepoys. The force commanded by Colonel Maxwell at eleven o'clock issued from the town and advanced through the trenches. The besieged were vigilant, and the instant the leading party sprang from the trenches and in the bright moonlight ran forward to the breach, a number of blue lights were lighted all along the ramparts, and a heavy musketry fire was opened. The scene was eagerly watched by the troops in the camp, every feature being distinctly visible. The storming party could be seen rushing up the breach and mounting by ladders over the gateway, which was the central object of attack. The enemy gathered in masses at the top of the breach, but as soon as the stormers collected in sufficient strength and charged them with the bayonet, they broke and dispersed. The grenadiers moved along the ramparts to the right, clearing it of its defences, as they went along. The light companies did the same along the ramparts to the left, while the sepoys descended into the body of the fort. The whole of the defenders fled toward the Mysore gate at the other end of the fort, and when the three bodies of troops met there they found the gate blocked by the masses of fugitives. They charged them on all sides. The governor, a brave old soldier and a great favorite of the sultan, died fighting gallantly to the last. Six hundred of the garrison fell, and three hundred, for the most part wounded, were taken prisoners. The British loss was only fifty officers and men killed and wounded. The body of the governor was found next morning among the slain, and Lord Cornwallis sent a message to Tippoo, with an offer to have the body carried to his camp for burial. Tippoo, however, replied that the proper place for a soldier to be buried was where he fell, and accordingly the brave old soldier was laid to rest in the fort by the Mohammedan troops in the Sepoy regiment, with all military honors. While the assault was going on, Tippoo, who, in spite of the precautions taken, had received news of the intention of the general, and had warned the garrison of the fort to be prepared, dispatched two heavy columns as soon as the fire opened to attack the British camp on its flank. The movement had been foreseen and prepared against, and the attacks were both repulsed with heavy loss. The capture of the fort was effected but just in time, for the provisions were almost entirely consumed, and the scanty rations were eked out by digging up the roots of grasses and vegetables within the circuit of our pickets. The draft and carriage cattle were dying daily by the hundreds, the few remaining intended for food were in so emaciated a state that the flesh was scarcely eatable, and worst of all, the supply of ammunition was almost exhausted. The news of the fall of the fortress, considered by the natives to be almost impregnable, under the very eyes of the Sultan himself and his great army, produced a widespread effect, greatly depressing the spirit of Tippoo's adherents, while it proportionately raised those of the British troops, and excited the hopes of the peoples conquered by Tippoo and his father. One result was that the Pulagars, or chiefs of a tribe that had but recently fallen under the yoke of Mysore, were at once emboldened to bring in provisions to the town. As great stores were found in the magazines in the fort, the starving animals regained some of their condition during the ten days that the troops were occupied in repairing the breaches, burying the dead, and placing the fort in a condition to stand a siege, should Tippoo return during the absence of the army. 
When this was done, and the stores of ammunition replenished from the magazines, the army started on its march north to Dianholi, where they were to effect a junction with the cavalry that the Nizam had agreed to furnish. As it marched, it passed within three miles of Tippoo's army, which was proceeding in a westerly direction. Tippoo could here have brought on a general engagement had he wished it, but the capture of Bangalore had for the time cowed his spirit, and he continued his march at a rate that soon placed him beyond the reach of the British. At Dianholi a junction was effected with the Nizam's horse, ten thousand in number. These proved, however, of no real utility, being a mere undisciplined herd, who displayed no energy whatever except in plundering the villages. The united force now moved southeast to guard a great convoy which was advancing up the pass of Ambor, and when this had been met, returned to Bangalore. During the operations of the siege, the Rajah's troop had been rather inactive, and Dick's duties as interpreter had been nominal. At Bangalore no English prisoners had been found, and he was heartily glad when he heard that it was the intention of Lord Cornwallis to march directly upon Seringapatam. It was indeed a necessity for the English general to bring the campaign to a speedy termination. The war was entailing a tremendous strain upon the resources of the company. The Nizam and the Marathis were not to be depended upon in the slightest degree, and might at any moment change sides. The French Revolution had broken out, and all Europe was alarmed, and many of the English regiments might at any moment be ordered to return home. Therefore anything like a thorough conquest of Mysore was impossible, and there was only time to march to Seringapatam to capture Tippoo's capital and to dictate terms to him. Immense exertions were made to restore the efficiency of the baggage train, and on the 3rd of May the army marched from Bangalore. Tippoo, devoured alike by rage and fear, had taken no efficient steps to meet the coming storm. His first thought was to prevent the English from discovering the brutal cruelty with which his white captives had been treated. He had over and over again given the most solemn assurances that he had no white prisoners in his hands, and he now endeavored to prevent their obtaining evidence of his falsehood and cruelty by murdering the whole of those who remained in his hands at Seringapatam. Having effected this massacre, he next ordered all the pictures that he had caused to be painted on the walls of his palace and other buildings, holding up the English to the contempt and hatred of his subjects to be obliterated, and he also ordered the bridge over the northern loop of the Calvary to be destroyed. He then set out with his army to bar the passage of the British to Seringapatam. The weather was extremely bad when the British started. Rainstorms had deluged the country, and rendered the roads well-nigh impassable, and the movement was, in consequence, very slow. Tippoo had taken up a strong position on the direct road, and in order to avoid him, Lord Cornwallis took a more circuitous route, and Tippoo was obliged to fall back. The whole country through which the English passed had been wasted. The villages were deserted, and not an inhabitant was to be met with. Suffering much from wet and the immense difficulties of bringing on the transport, the army on the 13th of May arrived on the Calvary, nine miles east of Seringapatam. Here it had been intended to cross the river, but the rains had so swollen the stream that it was found impossible to ford it. It was therefore determined to march to a point on the river ten miles above Seringapatam, where it was hoped that a better ford could be found, and where a junction might be effected with General Abercrombie's Bombay army, which was moving up from the Malabar coast, and was but thirty or forty miles distant. To effect this movement it was necessary to pass within sight of the capital. Tippoo came out and took up a strong position on a rugged and almost inaccessible height. In front was a swamp stretching to the river while batteries had been thrown up to sweep the approaches. By a night march accomplished in the midst of a tremendous thunder and rainstorm, Lord Cornwallis turned Tippoo's position. 
The confusion occasioned by the storm, however, and the fact that several of the corps lost their way, prevented the full success hoped for from being attained, and gave Tippoo time to take up a fresh position. Colonel Maxwell led five battalions up a rocky ledge, held by a strong body of the Mysore troops, carried it at the point of the bayonet, and captured some guns. Tippoo immediately began to fall back, but would have lost the greater portion of his artillery, had not the Nizam's horse moved forward across the line by which the British were advancing. Here they remained in an inert mass, powerless to follow Tippoo, and a complete barrier to the British advance. So unaccountable was their conduct that it was generally believed in the army that it was the result of treachery, and it was with difficulty that the British troops could be restrained from firing into the horde of horsemen, who had, from the time they joined the force, been worse than useless. As soon as the British could make their way through or round the obstacle of their advance, they pursued the retreating force of Tippoo until it took refuge under the guns of the works round Seringapatam. Their loss had been two thousand, that of the British five hundred. But the success was of little benefit to the latter. The terrible state of the roads and the want of food had caused the death of great numbers of draught animals, and the rest were so debilitated as to be absolutely useless. And during the two days' march that were required to reach the point on the river previously determined upon, the battering train and almost the whole of the carts were dragged along by the troops. The position of the army was bad in the extreme. Neither food nor forage were to be obtained from the country round. The troops were almost on famine rations, worn out by fatigue, and by the march through heavy rains, and nights spent on the sodden ground. Tippoo's horsemen hovered round them. The cavalry of the Nizam, which had been specially engaged to keep the foe at a distance, never once ventured to engage them. It was absolutely impossible to communicate with General Abercrombie, and after remaining but a couple of days in his new camp, Lord Cornwallis felt that the army could only be saved from destruction by immediate retreat. No time was lost in carrying out the decision once arrived at. Some natives were paid heavily to endeavor to make their way to Abercrombie, with orders for him to retire down the ghats again into Malabar. Then the whole of the battering train and the heavy equipments were destroyed, and on the 26th of May the army started for its long march back to Bangalore. It had made but six miles when a body of horsemen some two thousand strong were seen approaching. Preparations were instantly made to repel an attack, when a soldier rode in and announced that the horsemen were the advanced party of two Maratha armies close at hand. This was welcome news indeed, for Cornwallis had no idea that the Marathas were within two hundred miles of him, and had come to believe that they had no intention whatever of carrying out their engagements. They had, it appeared, sent off a messenger every day to inform him of their movements, but so vigilant were Tippoo's cavalry that not one of them ever reached the British. In a few hours the junction was completed, and the sufferings of the army were at an end. Stores of every kind were abundant with the Marathis, and not only food but clothing and every necessity of life could be purchased in the great bazaars, occupied by the Maratha traders who accompanied the army. Had the two Maratha armies arrived a couple of days earlier, the destruction of the siege train would have been avoided, Seringapatam would have been besieged, Abercrombie's army of eight thousand men have joined, and the war brought at once to a conclusion. It was now, however, too late. The means for prosecuting the siege of so powerful a fortress were altogether wanting, and the united armies returned by easy marches to Bangalore. On the march the future plan of operations were decided upon. Lord Cornwallis sent orders for the sum of one million five hundred thousand rupees that had been intended for China to be at once dispatched to Bangalore for the use of the army and the allies. The larger of the Maratha forces under Purseram Bow, with a detachment of Bombay troops that had accompanied it, were to march to the northwest and reduce some of the forts and towns still held by the troops of Mysore. 
The other Maratha force, consisting chiefly of cavalry under Hurry Punt, were to remain at Bangalore. The cause of the long delay on the part of the Nizam and the Marathis was now explained. The Nizam's troop had spent six months in the siege of the fortress of Kapul, while an equal time had been occupied by Perseram Bow in the siege of Durwar, a very strong place garrisoned by ten thousand men. Tipu began negotiations immediately after his defeat near Seringapatam, and these were continued until July when they were finally broken off. Some months were occupied in reducing a number of the hill forts, commanding the entrances to the various passes. Among these, two deemed absolutely impregnable, Savandrug and Nundigrug, were captured, but the attack upon Kisnagere was repulsed with considerable loss. By the capture of these places Lord Cornwallis obtained access to supplies from the Malabar and Karnatek coasts, and was thus free from the risk of any recurrence of the misfortunes that had marred his previous attempt to lay siege to Seringapatam, and on the fifth day of February, 1792, he again came within sight of Tipu's capital. End of chapter 8 Recording by Mike Harris